1: In any moment, we can shift from things happening to us to as soon as we decide to take that pen and paper and now choose what happens next to us, that is when we act in authenticity.
2: From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, And this is Out of Patience. On the show today, authenticity advocate, speaker, coach, writer, Erica Gertis. Lots of descriptors there, but rest assured listeners, you're in store for an organic, no BS kitchen table chat about worthiness, insecurity, and how being a people pleaser doesn't really please people. It's time to focus on the art of undoing the limiting beliefs that we hold so dear that hold us back from whatever it is that we want to be. As carbon-based life forms on this small blue marble. You know, I like to say man plans and God laughs or insert deity here laughs. And Erica is no exception to that rule. Just when you think things are set straight ahead and everything is going to plan, famous last words, when her three-month-old daughter faced a life-threatening spinal tumor, that's when real life kicks in and where the plan is that there is no plan and our vanity and quest for approval fly out the window for all the right reasons. Maybe we can all find strength when things aren't fine. I also learned what a zoogler is and I tell you to google that but well you'll find out. Enjoy the show. Erica, thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience. I'd like to say we're all a little out of patience, but what are you out of patience most today?
1: There are so many things I could choose from. Today, actually, I'm feeling pretty good. I was just talking to my daughter before this and asking her how she was feeling and realizing that I'm actually feeling pretty content today. So I'd say my patience is a little higher than usual today, but on any given day, I'm out of patience for a lot of things.
2: I think that's a fair assessment of anyone these days going through COVID and calamity and children. You have two young kids, so all the empathy due between the two of us.
1: Yes, it is a challenge. Probably one of the reasons I have more patience today is because my kids have been doing uh, virtual school at their dad's house for the last day and a half. <laughs> so ah, it's been a little bit of a break for me. <laughs> I, a
2: nice respite, I see you. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I want our listeners to know that you and I have one of the oddest things in common with people I know. We're both ex-Googlers. And a lot of people didn't know I worked for Google in the mid-2000s. And you worked there for a very long time. Is there a like some kind of skull and bones code word for ex-Googlers that you use amongst yourselves?
1: <laughs> we have a secret handshake. Did they not let you in on it? Ah, Ooh, I,
2: I missed that.
1: So sad. Uh, I'm now, sorry. Now I have
2: FOMO. <laughs> Google FOMO.
1: You know, it's It's funny uh, because the secret handshake is a joke, but there actually is an organization called the Zoogler, uh, which is like ex-Oogler um, organization. And I mean, it's a full-on... A very active group and there's a lot of support for each other out out in the wild for those who used to work at Google and no longer.
2: I'm David Attenborough and we (laughs) see the spotted zoogler here in the (laughs) savannah of Ghana.
1: Exactly. Although with now, what is it, a hundred and some odd thousand people that work there, there are more and more of us. So we're no longer such a rarity as we used to be. (laughs) That's
2: incredible. What did (laughs) you do there?
1: I worked, as you mentioned, I worked there for a very long time, 12 years, in fact, a little over. And I was always in the ad sales side, so media side of the business, which is the primary money-making machine for what funds the projects that change the world that Google works on. And so I actually, when I first started, I started by a manually approving the ads that people would see on google.com. And over the years, I worked my way up and ultimately was a global business executive. So I oversaw one of Google's largest global partnerships and all of the activities that we had with this particular partner.
2: Were you one of those people who worked at Google that did what they went to
1: college to do? Oh no! I didn't take a single class that I thought actually made me a relevant fit for Google. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's actually kind of funny. I all of my degrees. So I have two undergraduate degrees and one master's degree. Um, all of them are related to communication. So both my undergrad, one of my undergraduates, and my graduate degrees are actually communication, and then the other one is Spanish. So. You know, I took lots of speaking courses and how people communicate in organizations and all that kind of stuff, but I never took a single real business course, marketing course, certainly no engineering courses, nothing that I thought actually would be a really good fit. And when I moved to California after my graduate program, I was actually following my at the time boyfriend and I was obs- I became obsessed as soon as we I realized that where we were moving was very close to the Google headquarters. This was like 2005. So Google was really up and coming at the time, but still pretty small. And I became obsessed with the idea of working there, but I just, I never applied because I never thought I could possibly get in. And it just happened to be that four months after I moved to California, living in the Bay Area, I applied to every job I thought I could get a job at, and I never, didn't get a single call back. I started applying to anonymous Craigslist ads, And that was (laughs) risky even then. Yeah, Now I I can't even imagine. (laughs) uh, Not even imaginable, no. (laughs) It was for an anonymous internet powerhouse. But again, I was living in the Bay Area. This is 2006. It it could have been been anything. That's like when the bubble was really, really starting to get big. Right. And uh, it turned out it was Google. And so when the recruiter called to tell me that they were actually going to hire me for Google, I... Literally, I screamed. I started crying. I mean, it was so not cool,
2: <laughs> right? <laughs>
1: and I couldn't believe it. I was there. I made it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I feel like um, you know the first time I, I visited their campus, there, there was like a giant like dinosaur mm-hmm. of bones in the yard, yes. and all the food was free. I my my favorite memory of going to Google in two thousand whatever five six seven was that their internet download speeds were like a gigabyte. And we don't even have that today, 20 years later, right? So how they managed to, what that, what, Internet Powerhouse? They owned that claim, that random Craigslist post that you responded to.
1: Yes. It is definitely true. And Sue is the name of the dinosaur that you're talking about. And I mean, when I moved or when I worked at Google, um, I had been out of my graduate program for a little over a year. And when I was hired, it was alongside basically all these other kids that had just come out of their college program. So we were all basically the same age. And it felt like this amazing panacea. I mean, it was absolutely everything you could possibly dream of. Like you said, I mean, dinosaurs, everybody looked like they were just so happy and so joyful to be coming to work and they're carrying backpacks and they're getting free food and we're all getting paid to be there. It was absolutely amazing. And I loved every second of it. And the entire time I felt incredibly insecure because I was so afraid that somebody was going to Tap me on the shoulder and tell me, we've discovered that you don't actually deserve to be here, and we're going to ask you to leave. <laughs> so I was insecure the majority of the time I was there.
2: Did we just segue into human fragility?
1: <laughs> oh, I, I I make this transition so often. <laughs> it's a wonder I'm single, isn't it?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it forms the backbone of who you've become over the past couple of years and what you stand for and your message as a speaker and now a coach. I'll mention to our crowd that we met through our dear friend, Tricia Brooke, who also was on my show recently. If you scrape back through the, the the pod schedule thing, the kids call on your feed, I'll just channel my older 46-year-old as I said that. <laughs> but, you know, you came... And as if t- it
1: didn't give it away when we were talking about the 2005.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I, just, just yesterday, I was talking to a friend about a Simpsons episode Uh, from the 90s when the internet was just like a word and homer's like "Mm, they have the internet on computers now and that's (laughs) how we talked about it in 1994
1: (laughs) oh yes the good old days
2: so i want to go into the shock moments you know Bad things happen to good people and, and it's always the the shift in your psyche of how the planet works and your life gets interrupted for all the wrong reasons and how you choose to lean into it or deal with it or step into the fire or when you go through hell, keep going, all these cat poster <laughs> things to say. But you know you had experienced something fairly traumatic when your three-month-old daughter, Vivian, had to go through something very unexpected and very tragic. Can we talk about mm-hmm. that?
1: Sure, absolutely. As you said, so I have two daughters. Uh, One is, um, she's now nine, her name is Evelyn, and my younger one is 18 months younger. Her name is Vivian. And when my second daughter was born, when she was two weeks old, we discovered that she had a tumor on her spinal cord. And that was so far out of any plan that I had ever had in my life. And I was very sort of plan and goal oriented. And When I found myself at three, when she was three and a half months old, sitting in the hospital room as she's recovering from seven-hour spinal neurosurgery, it really caused me to bring my entire life into focus. And up to that point in my life, I had been... A an overachieving, uh, people pleaser, really really interested in striving for and trying to find perfection in everything I did, and so you know I had become the person I was supposed to become, and I did all the things I thought I was supposed to do. I I checked all the boxes that I thought would make me happy, and yet in that moment none of it mattered, and I, I instead the only thing I could think about was why is this happening to her? Why did this happen to me? This wasn't my plan. And as I, as I felt really, really sorry for her and for myself, I had this thought that sort of broke in all my sadness and fear. And it, it was a thought that ultimately changed my life. And it came with this feeling that felt so calming and so true that I couldn't ignore it. And the thought was, you have one life to live. There are no second chances, no do overs. You get one go round at this life. Why would you spend one more minute waiting to be happy? And what I realized is I was waiting. I was waiting for my life when all of the things I was doing and all the people I had become was going to pay off and I would finally feel happy and fulfilled and satisfied. And I couldn't keep waiting for those changes to happen on the inside, on the outside. I had to really take control and start making those changes on the inside.
2: You know, when I was sick, and uh, I mean, everyone, my listeners know this, I was sick and at 21 years old in college, I had to come up with some kind of rationale as to, I didn't, I'm not a why me person, I did just the way I guess I was raised in, in my environment, I never asked why me, I asked kind of like, what the fuck, really? you know, like how dare this get in my way kind of thing, speed bump (laughs) stuff. And I was just stupidly invincible enough at 21 to not really see the mortality. But at the end of the day, when I finally did see my mortality around 21 and a half and I said, am I going to be alive in six weeks? I came up with a mantra that echoes of what you just said. It brought me back to that moment. And I've said this on the air and in the media uh, time and again, but it's like everything that happens to you just becomes part of your life. And what are you going to do? Not live your life and figure out all this stuff. And you got to be the best you can be with the shit you're given. And to quote my inner Tolkien, just to overly nerd out, is uh, I think Gandalf says that we must make the most of the time that has been given to us.
1: I absolutely love that. And I think so much of the time, I mean, certainly, what I believe is that, Most of us live with this idea that we're invincible and that we just keep getting, you know, to go around like the, the vision I had when I was in the hospital uh, with my daughter was that I was had this carousel that I was just going to keep being able to ride on until I figured it out and got it right. And what I realized was I get one of these, I get one round of this. And if I don't get it right, I'm done. I I don't want to get to the end of my life whenever that might be tomorrow or uh, 60 years from now and realize I didn't make the most of it. And, That was what really was a fundamental shift in my life to say, I cannot keep waiting because I have no idea how much more time I have and I want to make the most of it. And I want to get to the end of my life and think, man, that was an adventure that was worth living for, not meh, that wasn't so bad. And so to sort of echo what you just said, one of the most sort of fundamental shifts in my mindset, I also have never been like, have never allowed myself to be a sit in victimhood for a long time. and. What I really, really believe is that when we can shift from that place of thinking of ourselves as victims of circumstance, why did this happen to me? This is so unfair that this happened, to all of a sudden becoming students of the universe saying, what can I learn from this? How can I grow through this? Then that is the point at which we become the authors of our lives rather than the victims or the heroes. back
2: with our guest after the break.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
2: So I want to get to where you're at now, but not just where you're at now, but how you got to where you are at now as a speaker. Coach, you call yourself an authenticity advocate. I love those two words together. Those are syllables that I approve of. Lots of times there are many syllables that just mean absolute shit and have nothing to get behind them. You were on a podcast called Lessons from a Quitter. I love that podcast. And you wrote a piece on Medium called Finding Strength When Things Aren't Fine. How do you get from people pleaser to fuck that guy?
1: (laughs) I wouldn't say it's fuck that guy. It's I need to, again, empower myself to be in control of how I feel and not blame somebody else because then I'm just giving my power away. And to to that, it's a you know, it's a very long journey. I used to think that. Once I made a decision or learned a lesson that that was it, I was done because that's what self-help books and podcasts and blogs and articles and the experts tell us is just you know change your mind and everything else changes. And while that's true, we tend to trip over the same things over and over and over again until we really deeply learn the lessons. And so for me, my evolution has been about really learning to let go of who I think I should be. And quite frankly, most of that is protecting myself from who I can't be and really learn how to embrace who I am and who I am to become. And all of that means letting go of self protection, letting go of control, letting go of who I was in the moment before in order to make room for who I am to become in the next moment that's coming. Yeah.
2: I mean, channeling even Gary Vanderchuk, who's, at, I mean, he's all over the place, but I think one of his strongest core messages, at least consistently over the last 10 years, is that if you let yourself be defined by how other people define you, or if you if you allow how you think other people influence what they think about you, it's like this crazy word nausea thing, but at the end of the day, What does it really take? And I know there's no one binary answer for people, and we're just speaking anecdotally based on our reference, but you're doing this now for a living. Where have you found even the smallest semblance of secret sauce in giving people permission to recognize that their own perfection is there to define, and it's not about being perfect, it's about being perfect for you.
1: So, just to back up because I, I I'm glad that you approve of the syllables of my the way I call myself an authenticity advocate. It was actually hard for me to decide on that because I think authenticity is one of those words that is being thrown around so much, it's in danger of becoming a cliche if it's not already. Right. And so just to tell you what I mean by authenticity, I actually did some, I'm a total nerd, and I actually looked at the etymology of the word authenticity. And in old Greek, it actually means to uh, be one's own authority or to author, which means that in any moment, we can shift from things happening to us to as soon as we decide to take that pen and paper and now choose what happens next to us, that is when we act in authenticity. And that doesn't mean that we don't change and evolve over time. It means that we are at choice in the direction that we take with our lives. And so Best way for us to shift to a place of authenticity is to realize where we are not at choice, where we are reacting based on self-protection, based on old stories that are sitting in our heads that are unconsciously controlling our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors, the way we see the world. And as soon as we can bring those things to the surface, they no longer have the power over us and are no longer unconsciously controlling our behaviors. And instead, now we are at choice and we can act with intention rather than react by default.
2: How do you feel about the definitions or maybe the Venn diagramifications of peer support versus professional mental health and coaching?
1: I think they're all really important. And I think they all have a place the way I see those fitting together just off the top of my head. So the way I think about mental health and I like some of your previous guests on the show, absolutely believe that everybody needs therapy at some point in their lives. I have had lots of therapy in my life and my mom is a psychologist. So I have also been diagnosed throughout my life by my mother and, I believe that therapy is really about healing our old wounds. It's it's about sort of healing backwards and trying to make sense of the stuff that got that led us to have the stories in our heads. The coaching is about healing or momentum forward. So all that stuff that we've had throughout our lives has created these stories that are playing as white noise in, in our heads and causing us to react. But it wasn't just there then, it is still there now. It is baggage you are carrying around that is causing you to act in certain ways now. So how can we use coaching to undo those layers or those sort of that stuck baggage and help you move forward with more intention? Peer support is a really interesting intersection for me because as you know, all of the memes and cat posters, as you say, talk about, you are who you hang out with. And so peer support is really based on, we need to feel a sense of belonging. And so we identify ourselves based on how we feel that sense of belonging. So if your peer group is defining you and identifying you based on these things that are really no longer serving you, if, if you don't change that peer group, then it's going to be incredibly hard for you to actually grow out of those reactive patterns because they keep you feeling safe, even if they keep you feeling stuck. So when we change our peer support groups to really rise us up, then it becomes much easier for us to have accountability and desire and motivation in order to make the changes that we're looking to in our lives.
2: So is the magic word here just worthiness? Am I worth this? What defines my self-worth and what influences, you know, whether it's the the, the five-cent gum, the 10-cent gum, the 25-cent gum, or the claw? Like, where do you rank in the plucking out your identity?
1: Identity and worthiness absolutely go hand in hand. The one thing that I think makes saying this is about worthiness a challenge is that Worthiness, anything that we just throw around as words, it keeps us in our heads and prevents us from feeling it. And our actions and our thoughts, all of this stuff is really prevent is trying to keep us protected from feeling the icky stuff, the dreadful stuff, the reprehensible stuff. And so most of us don't want to believe that we don't see ourselves as worthy. Years ago, a, a therapist said to me, I don't think you think you're enough. I was so offended by it. I mean, I had obviously like a lifetime of patterns that demonstrated that I w- didn't believe I was enough. But when he asked me point blank, I was like, of course, I think I'm enough. I'm smart. I'm successful. I I left a marriage for God's sake. Of course, I think I'm enough. And then I started looking back at Old journals. And I discovered a pattern of dating the same man for 20 years, different face, different name. I mean, actual different person, but it was always the same pattern. And it was always about emotional breadcrumbs. And what I realized in that moment is I actually didn't think I deserved better than anything than that. And I really didn't think I was enough because if I did, I wouldn't have stood for it over and over and over again. So we have to get to a place where we're really honest with ourselves that. That is the pattern that we are sort of protecting ourselves from feeling that not enoughness. And so yes, the key word here is worth, but in order to get to that, I think the most important step we can take is awareness.
2: So let's talk about how you've managed to muster the strength or you've found your worthiness and the authenticity therein, perhaps, to get on stage. I mean, it's COVID, so virtual stage, but rhetorically, to actually get on stage, confront large audiences, and be a speaker. Talk to us about that transition.
1: You know, what's interesting is that was always part of my identity. It's actually the getting on stage and talking about my vulnerable stuff that's scarier. I have always loved public speaking. It is part of, it is a gift of mine. It is something I have always, always loved. And I mean, when I was in elementary school, I was doing plays. When I was in high school, I was a competitive orator in speech and debate. I was a cheerleader. I mean, basically every role I've ever had was some sort of being up in front of people. I taught college classes. I mean, I've really done it all. And The self-protection, what enabled me to do it and still feel like it was low risk is that I I was always delivering other people's content. It was never my own creative babies that I was really talking about because, of course, that's super vulnerable and risky. And so the challenge for me has been, how do I get up on stage and talk about the stuff I really believe in that are my creative babies and still feel worthy? And not feel like I need to change my message simply because somebody doesn't understand it or agree with it.
2: So you're going to get up on stage and subject yourself to a whole other level of judgment and scrutiny from audiences. Do you have to build up a bit of a uh, maybe a Kevlar sense of spidey training defensiveness given what you've built already for yourself to subject yourself to that level of stage experience and stage feedback?
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked this question because it's actually the exact opposite. Because if we build up Kevlar, then all we're doing is staying in a place of self-protection. Because if I have to tell myself, I don't care what you think, then all I'm doing is creating more barriers between me and you and our ability to connect authentically and vulnerably. So what... I always teach everybody the practice of authenticity, and it is a practice, is not something that, like, once you get you're done, because again, it's about continually writing and you know, a new word, a new sentence, a new chapter all the time. Is really about allowing ourselves to feel safe, letting our protection go. And that's requires a lot of practice. And so a lot of us, what we tend to do is, as soon as we think, okay, I'm going to go be authentic. I'm going to go do something that's brave or courageous. We, we take a really big step and then we feel super exposed, super you know, uh, it feels really, really dangerous. And so what we tend to do in those moments, it feels like whiplash and we immediately run back for the protection because that's what's safe and and known. And so in order to like build ourselves up to these bigger places where it feels OK and safe to take b- these risks, it really requires celebrating the I call them micro wins. Every single time, no matter how big or how small, you allow yourself to step into a moment vulnerably and authentically without the self-protection, it is a moment to celebrate. Because we do not lose ourselves or find ourselves in huge sweeping steps or decisions. It is in the micro decisions that we make over and over and over every single day that bring us further away from ourselves or closer to ourselves. So each time you choose intentionally a micro decision that brings you closer to yourself is an opportunity to step into more authenticity, which only creates more momentum to take bigger and bigger steps the further you go.
2: So let's pivot a second to therapize with our fellow parents in COVID, in Gen X world. What life hacks can you, aside of like dumping your kids on your ex-husband's house, which is a nice <laughs> life hack that I can't take advantage of, but what life hacks have you built for self-preservational instincts over the last six months that you could share with us?
1: Well, I really try not to focus on self-preservation, but on actually trying to, because I have a lot of like old coping mechanisms, defense mechanisms that intuitively and instinctively come up. So um, I'll give you a, a really good example. Like we're already obviously, you know, in a huge uncertain time with a ton of uh, risk and fear and all anxiety and all the other things. I'm also in the process of building a business, which brings its own complications and being a single mom. So I'm doing the majority of, of schooling for my children. And my youngest daughter, we just discovered, needs to have surgery again soon on this tethered cord that I mentioned, or this issue that, uh, that caused her to have surgery when she was three months old, that spiraled me out. So my instinctive immediate reaction is find all the chocolate and all the wine and just bury myself in it. Like that is what I want to do as soon as I can. (laughs) And I feel this achy sense that sort of comes up and I have to really, really allow myself to breathe through it and be very present to it so that I don't immediately go for that self protection and you know the the wine is never going to make me feel better tomorrow it's only going to make me feel less right now the chocolate is never going to make me feel better tomorrow it's just going to make me feel distracted right now so i have to really practice a ton of self care because when i pre- and, but what i mean by self care because again that's another one of those kind of cliched things i'm not talking about sheet masks and day spas i'm talking about really taking care of my physical and emotional health in really nurturing ways. So getting enough sleep, eating a healthy diet, drinking a ton of water and exercising regularly. Those are the the life hacks for me that I know that if I'm practicing those, it is much, much easier for me to regulate and recover and be intentional more quickly. Because if I'm, if I'm in a place of just barely physically surviving because I'm not taking care of my body, it is going to be nearly impossible for me to, you know, sort of, it move into a place of intention and actualization when I need to.
2: All right. Your website is Erica Gertis G-E-R, actually Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A-G-E-R-D-E-S.com. You have a 30-second bully pulpit. Why should people learn about you and what do they get when they go to your website?
1: People should learn about me because I truly care about helping people unlock their full potential and expand their full range so they can live with more creativity, joy, and innovation. It is what I am on this earth to do, and I have bet my entire life on this mission. And I would absolutely be overjoyed to help serve you in helping you find your authenticity so that you can live with more impact, more creativity, and really, truly create a life with more meaning.
2: Erica Curtis, authenticity advocate, speaker, coach, and zoogler what I yeah. just learned today? <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in Out of Patience.
1: Thank you so much. This was fabulous. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe,
0: leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horangeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.